welcome to the Diagnostics Dialogues. Here we present discussions with experts in diagnostics and specialty medicine, designed to keep you up to date with the hottest clinical topics. Tune in to hear Dr. Damien, aka Pat Alasia, Senior Medical Director for Quest Diagnostics, interview a variety of medical luminaries to get their take on some of the complex challenges faced by hospitals and health systems. Hello, I'm Dr. Pat Alasia, and welcome to Diagnostic Dialogues from Quest Diagnostics. This show explores how the physicians and scientists think about the world of diagnostic testing, a topic that has taken on an incredible level of interest since the COVID pandemic started about 18 months ago. Today, we will be talking about another epidemic that is impacting our entire healthcare system, and that is the opioid epidemic. My guest today is my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jeffrey Gooden. Dr. Gooden, is a highly regarded and respected leader in the field of addiction medicine, pain management, and toxicology, who leads our toxicology franchise at Quest Diagnostics. He is a highly sought after speaker, innovator, and educator who has published extensively in the area of addiction medicine with his most recent publication titled, The Opioid Epidemic Within the COVID-19 Pandemic, Drug Testing in 2020. This article appeared and population health management. So Jeff, with that as a little bit of background, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before we start our conversation? No, Pat, I'm happy to be here and, uh, and thanks for having me. It's very timely as you've probably seen about a week or two ago, the CDC put out some preliminary data about drug overdose deaths in this country. And we are indeed in the midst of kind of two epidemics, our pandemic and our epidemic of, of opioid abuse. So Jeff, I always like to start these conversations with a story. I mean, we're both doctors, we're both clinicians, we're both taking care of people in the clinic and in the hospital. What do these individuals look like? What's driving this? You know, Pat, if you think back to when we were youngsters, right? You know, 40, 50 years ago, we all had in our mind what an addict looked like, right? Skinny and disheveled and track marks and red around the eyes. And they just looked, they looked terrible. They looked sick. But nowadays, unfortunately, drug abuse has become uh, more recreational, so to speak. Uh, And there are intermittent drug misusers. So drug abuse has turned into even a white collar problem. This is not just a a street issue any longer. And Pat, I think you know that I I used to run a a drug abuse treatment center up in Connecticut. And we saw, you know, everywhere from the homeless to the CEOs of large corporations come in with drug problems. So you're not spared based on any socioeconomic class or race or ethnicity. Drug abuse is, is a universal phenomenon. So Jeff, you know, COVID-19 has spilled the papers and it makes us believe or think that maybe drug abuse has gone away. The opioid crisis has gone away. We've got it in check that we can move on with our lives, but that doesn't seem to be the case. What happened? Why don't we have this under control yet? You know what, Pat, it's actually quite the opposite. I I mentioned the the new CDC data of more than 93,000 overdose deaths. Just a few years ago, we said, hey, it's getting better. We're below 70,000. You know, the numbers had crept up and we all thought it was because doctors were prescribing pain medicines. But now, you know, in addition to the COVID-19 pandemic and the overdose epidemic, we also have another epidemic of chronic pain that there's so many thousands of pain patients that have been taken off these pain medications that are controlled substances because doctors fear this problem of addiction, misuse, abuse, and diversion. 
So we're really in healthcare at the intersection of trying to treat pain, trying to treat our COVID-19 pandemic and trying to treat the, the drug abuse. So think about it. We are in the worst pandemic in over a century. Things that none of our generation are used to. We're isolated at home. We're stressed. Uh, we may have lost our jobs. Hey, we may have lost loved ones from the disease. Uh, all of this leads to anxiety. And if there's one thing we know for sure that in times of stress and social isolation, people are going to con consume more alcohol and people are going to use more illicit drugs. So we did something very interesting at Quest, Pat. Think about Quest being one of the largest labs in the country, right? We serve half of all doctors and physicians in hospitals. Who better to surveil the community for drug use than Quest? We do millions of drug tests. So what we did was after the pandemic started, after about six or eight weeks, we mined our own data and we said, hey, let's look and see what illicit drug use looks like in the throes of this pandemic. And we saw a dramatic rise in heroin and fentanyl positivity in our drug testing samples. Fast forward now, six months to a year later, and all of a sudden the newspapers, the Washington Post, the CDC is now starting to see the the uptick in overdose-related deaths. So from a surveillance standpoint, Quest was phenomenal, a phenomenal source at picking up the early signs of our country's drug abuse problem. Unfortunately, we don't have an easy answer. Hey, Jeff, it seems as if this has come upon us. Is this a recent phenomenon or is it, you know, in 10 or 20 years ago when I was actively treating patients and doing surgery, we didn't hear about the opioid epidemic or we didn't hear about the drug deaths. Is this new? You know, Pat, I mean, we could spend an hour talking about the history of opioid epidemics, which have happened throughout history. I mean, think about how old morphine or the poppy plant is, right? I mean, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, they talked about the milk of poppy, right? You're talking about hundreds of hundreds or thousands of years ago, right? So I'll take you back 200 years ago, 150 years ago. Think about the Civil War, right? If you think about when morphine was first crystallized, when they invented the hypodermic needle, then we get into the Civil War where they fought with bayonets and, and you know, big gunpowder bullets and people had these terrible traumatic injuries. And morphine may have been the most commonly prescribed medication back then. They used it for headaches. They used it for menstrual cramps. They used it for it before we understood the addictive properties. And if you remember, that took us out 40, 50 years till the government had to intervene and put all of these laws in place about opioids. Well, fast forward now to when the pharmaceutical company said, hey, you know what? Rather than these quick acting, probably more addictive opiates. What if we develop a 12 hour formulation that releases more slowly? And yes, when patients took them appropriately, they were miracle drugs. They, I always say it, they revolutionized the way we treat cancer pain and really bad things. But the misusers realized early on that if they crushed the 12 hour tablet, they can have all the drug in five minutes, uh, make it quick acting. And if you remember Pat, if, when you prescribe the oxycodone, like the Percocet or the Lortab or the Vicodin, those are five milligrams, 7.5 milligrams. Well, the 12 hour versions come in 20, 40 and 80 milligrams. So think about you crush one tiny little pill, you get 15 to 20 times more drug than you were getting with what you and I used to prescribe. So the availability of pure prescription opioids in higher doses in those forms did they cause the epidemic? Absolutely not. Drug abuse has been a problem for as long as we've uh, had, you know, plants and flowers and, and alcohol. But it did contribute to the problem because instead of going for street drugs, people said, hey, I can get a safe, 
pure form of a dose. I know what the dose is every time. It's consistent. I know what to use. And uh, unfortunately, it did contribute to our nation's opioid epidemic. I don't think it caused it. I think doctors have really curtailed their prescribing. Like I said before, I think it's affected our pain patient population. But you go to most clinics now, most primary care doctors, they're not using opioids for headaches and fibromyalgia and ankle sprains. And even your oral surgeons after wisdom teeth extraction, Motrin or Tylenol, that's your primary drug. Yeah, hey, you need two or three tablets to get you through a few days. But the days of 30, 60, 90 tablets for acute pain of opioids, I think those are long gone. How did we miss it? I mean, you know, we were trained to give pain medicine, you know, dispense number 30, Percocet 2.5 or 5, no refills, okay, you're safe. And, you know, then we had another set of drugs that came out. Obviously, we want to focus on keeping our patients comfortable post-operatively or post-procedure or if they have bad bone pain from cancer or they're in hospice. I mean, it all kind of merges into the same kind of way of thinking. How do we miss it as doctors? I mean, we're smart. We're, you know, on top of things. What is it that changed? So, Pat, I'll tell you, I, what I think has changed is technology in the form of prescription drug monitoring databases and urine or other matrix drug testing. So two of my colleagues, Nat Katz and Gil Fansulo, did a study, and I bet you it's 25 years ago now, just to date myself. One of these guys was head of pain at Harvard, and the other took over the pain center at Dartmouth, right? So not too shabby. Yeah. And these guys said, you know, this is when urine drug testing really just was in its infancy. These guys said, you know, we don't think guys like us need to adopt drug testing. We think we know our patients well enough. Well, they tested a couple hundred people in their own practice, and they found 40% Believe it or not, Pat, we find 50% these days, upwards of 50%, which we publish in our health trends data. I'll talk about that in a moment. But these two national, perhaps international renowned pain experts found more than 40% of patients in their own practice when you drug test them either didn't have the drug in there they were supposed to have or had another drug in there that didn't belong there. So how did we miss it? I think people are very nonchalant uh, and don't recognize the dangers of drug mixing or using medicines the way they want to use them and not the way we tell them as clinicians to use them. For example, there's not a week that passes that somebody in my practice doesn't come back positive for a benzodiazepine that I'm not prescribing. And when I say, hey, you're on pain medicines, it's a danger to, for you to mix this sedative tranquilizer, this Ativan or Xanax or Valium with your opioid. Where are you getting it from? Well, when I'm stressed, I'll take one of my wife's drug X. Or when I can't sleep, my friend gave me some of his Ativan. You know, people don't recognize the dangers of, of drug mixing. And these people don't look like drug addicts. They're just normal people that think it's okay to, to mix their drugs. So I, I think between drug testing, so we're now able to monitor patients' compliance, and every state in the country now has a database that within 24 hours that you fill a prescription at a pharmacy, the pharmacy has to enter into the database the controlled substance that you received, how many tablets, who the prescriber was, how many refills, you know, all of the data. And docs in most states are mandated almost every visit to go on that database website and see where are their patients getting controlled substances. You know, at the start of developing these PDMP, prescription drug monitoring programs, they looked in Massachusetts, and I forget the exact number, but there were millions of tablets dispensed to people that were filling at four or more pharmacies. 
And we had to do away with that, this doctor shopping phenomenon. So now that we have a universal system of prescription drug monitoring in the form of a computerized database that we can check, now that we have higher level, more accurate drug testing, we're able to really keep our fingers on the pulse of our patients. So what do I do? I drug test my patients. Guess what? If you're behaving, you don't have anything to worry about. It's the misbehaving ones that usually put up a fight. But Jeff, you bring up an interesting point. You know, the, the doctors I know, and also the nurse practitioners and the healthcare professionals, we're all trying to do the right thing. And you know, from what I understand, the drugs are, are much, much stronger now than they were maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Even if I'm trying to do the right thing, is it still possible to get addicted? You know, Pat, I, I'll tell you what I tell most of my patients. Addiction is in the patient and not in the drug, right? They all want to know if one drug is more addictive than another. So I'll ask my patients a number of very point-specific questions. Are you a drinker? Yes. Okay, how much do you drink? Well, at the Christmas party, I have half a glass of champagne. That's a different story than, you know, I'm good for five or six beers a night. Or, yeah, I'm drinking on most nights. Do you smoke? Okay, how much do you smoke? What are you smoking? And how long have you been a smoker for? Have you ever had a prescription pain medicine that gave you euphoria or made you feel good? I try to ferret out from my interview with patients, what is their propensity to misuse a drug? Hmm. And if you have no risk factors, it is extremely rare for you to develop any type of substance use disorder from a prescription pharmaceutical. Might you feel good when you take it? Yes but it doesn't mean you're gonna sell your house and your car and your cats and your kids to go out on the street and, and buy drugs. So the lesson that teaches is that every clinician needs to develop a skill set, needs to have some tools. Even if it's the five question tool, we call it the ORT, the opioid risk tool. A colleague of mine, Dr. Lynn Webster out of Salt Lake City developed this five question tool. And it's brilliant. He picked the five most high risk behaviors that go along with drug abuse. And you ask patients about those. Have you ever had a drug problem? Do you have a family or, or family history of drug abuse? Do you have any mental health disorders? Those kind of questions to see if there's any red flags. And if there's no red flags, you're at an extremely low risk, not a zero risk, a low risk, but we recognize you're at low risk and maybe we'll drug test you once or twice a year. If you're at a medium risk, maybe we're drug testing you every quarter. If you're at high risk, you might be drug tested every month but we have to treat patients individually. We have to stratify their risk and we have to know how do we monitor them over time. So before I get into the um, hospital and health system opioid crisis question, how would you counsel me? You know, I'm a doctor, I've got uh, patients who have post-operative pain and everybody has different pain thresholds. After laparoscopic surgery, some patients may say, look, Motrin's fine. Other people might be in excruciating pain. I'm, you know, compassionate caregiver in person. I don't want to see anybody in pain. How do I go about sussing that out? So Pat, I'll tell you, most states now have acute pain prescribing guidelines. And the one in New Jersey was so stringent. Here's what it said. You can give your patient a five day or so prescription for pain medicines, three day or five day. I think it was five day. I'm in Florida now, but New Jersey went a couple of years back said, okay, you can give your, your patient a, a limited term, short acting pain medicine. By the third prescription, you need to have an, a treatment agreement with that patient, a written agreement with that patient. And with each and every prescription, you need to warn them about the risk of addiction, death, overdose, diversion, others in the house, safe use, safe disposal, safe storage, those kinds of things. So it's not like the old days where, Pat, you and I would finish a surgery, 
hand write a prescription on paper, hand it to the patient, they go get their 30 or 60 pills and they're out of sight, out of mind. Now it's a smaller volume of pills, more controlled, more follow-up, more forms and, and paperwork that has to go along with it. And by the third refill, they need, just like any chronic pain patient would need, a medication treatment agreement with the provider that outlines the rules, roles, and responsibilities of each party. Okay, so that brings me into my next question. We're seeing a lot of consolidation occurring in the healthcare marketplace right now. Hospitals are coming together, large group practices are coming together, oncology groups are forming, OBGYN groups, infectious disease groups are forming. What role do these large group practices and large integrated delivery systems play in managing or participating in ending this epidemic? Yeah, Pat, so I have to tell you, healthcare systems are more important now than ever when it comes to the opioid crisis. And that's for one reason, overdose. And you and I had a conversation about this a while back. One of the biggest challenges is until recently, most, most healthcare systems didn't have in place a mechanism to deal with these overdose patients. So they would overdose, be brought in by EMS, be resuscitated in the emergency room, get discharged alive and come back in next week with another overdose. That obviously was a broken system. So hospitals are now like a main care provider point for patients with substance use disorders, especially those who overdose, right? So many hospital systems have put in place kind of like a navigator system. We, we learned about the navigator system in our hospital when oncology put it in. Hey, the oncology patient is quite complex. If we had one person that oversaw their care, where do they park? How do they get into the mammography center? Where's the CAT scan? Hey, how do I get down for my PET scan? Hey, who keeps all the results in one place so everybody gets to see them? And that navigator pretty much changed the way we treat the oncology patient to put all of the information in one place. Many hospital systems are adopting this treat in the ER with almost like a navigator person. Hey, before you leave this emergency room, you're gonna have the name, telephone number and contact person at the local substance use treatment center because from here, you can't just go back out and overdose again and come back in. You have to go for some type of treatment. So I think the, you know, the hospital systems are getting more and more involved. Pat, the data is getting a little old, but 2017, 2018, more than 430,000 ER visits in the US for opioid overdose, 400,000. And that's a few years ago before we were in the pandemic and before this you know, synthetic fentanyl crisis really hit this country. And think about what happens to the ER. You're there for appendicitis or fracture or migraine headache. Well, sorry, you can't come in. You have to wait till we clear some beds because we have a couple of overdose patients in there. You have sepsis uh, you know, and you have to go to the ICU. Well, we got to clear the ICU. We have a couple of intubated overdose patients there. So it really was a, a true burden on the healthcare facilities. Now the hospitals are working so that social workers, patient care advocates, physicians, nurses, they all communicate with one system and they can get that patient with an opioid problem to the appropriate facility for treatment. That's not the hospital. Sometimes it's affiliated with the hospital, but usually that's out in the community. So let me expand on that a little bit. You said earlier that 95,000 deaths occur you know, from addiction or opioid. And then you said over 400,000 emergency room visit for opioids. Are you telling me that 25% of the people who are coming into the emergency room are dying because of the lack of integrated care? Pat, I'd be willing to say there's 10 times the amount of 
of overdoses that happen in the community that either go unreported and, pa and patients survive because they keep breathing. They just eventually wake up, right? So listen, that's a pure guess, yep. but I'd say you're, you're talking about millions of overdoses of which more than 400,000 four or five years ago came into the ERs. It is just a tremendous community problem. No question about it. To pick up on the community issue, you know, we now talk about integrated delivery systems. It's no longer my doctor's office, the ambulatory care center, and the hospital. It's integrated delivery. It's care management. It's using these navigators. How do you create those systems? And I'm going to ask you a little bit about, you know, how Quest can help these integrated delivery systems uh, with the work that they're doing. But give me a blueprint in you, that you have in your head. Obviously, you're the expert. You've been doing this for a long time. You work in an academic medical center. You've had a big practice, on and on and on. How do you get your head around this? Because it's a problem that we haven't quite solved yet, and we need to solve because as individuals who care, this is breaking your heart. So where do we go? Yeah, so Pat, I'll tell you. The first thing that comes to mind is unlike almost every other medical specialty where patients come to you for help, some of these people don't want help. Yeah, hey, save me. Give me my Narcan, right? And let me get out of here because... I don't want to go for treatment. I've been for treatment before. Who wants to be on methadone or suboxone? I don't want to go through withdrawals or, you know, like if you think about it, I used to come to your office, uh, you know, or, well, you were a gynecologist, so I wasn't coming to your office, but, you know, a woman would come to your office and, and, hey, I want your help. I need your help. They come to my pain center. Hey, I want your help. I need your help. But when they have substance use disorder, unless they're coming in for treatment, they don't necessarily want our help. And unfortunately, I mean, think about, you know, you're poorly controlled, you're, when, where compliance is a problem, compliance is a huge problem. And, and why is it a huge problem? Because their brain chemistry has changed over time in the patients with opioid use disorder, and they crave medicines. Hey, look, sometimes I get a junk food craving, and I got to fill it, right? Imagine if that was to an illicit or a controlled substance, and that's what it's like for these people. And to make matters worse, Pat, now that fentanyl is combined with so many illicit drugs on the street, fentanyl is so short acting that it makes them want to go back for a fix even more and more and more, like more quickly. So they get into this vicious cycle where they don't necessarily want to quit their drug use. And then look, go to any substance use treatment center and you will find, you know, 50, 60, 80, 90% recidivism. It's a hard disease to treat because even when these people get on the right track, the minute that their stress, their anxiety, their depression, their family crisis hits, they turn right back to their drug of choice. It's a very difficult problem to address. And I think healthcare systems are in a great place to do it. I think Quest is a great partner because I'll tell you in 25 years of pain management, you cannot keep somebody compliant unless we have an objective tool to know what's in their system. And the only objective tool that I know of to know what drug you've taken is drug testing. Hey, I can go on the web and look up your, your prescription history. It doesn't tell me about your wife's medicines that you're taking or the drugs you're buying on the street. I need to know what you're taking. And then for me, the only way to know that is drug testing. The science of drug testing, the toxicology of drug testing has gotten so much more precise in recent years. We could test down to the picograms of, uh, of blood in, in your system. Hey, we have tests for alcohol now. You know, the breathalyzer picks up only a few hours. We have other minor metabolites of alcohol. We could tell you three or four days worth of alcohol consumption, three or four days later. 
So for those that it's not just opioids or stimulants, we could even look for alcohol uh, in the lab. So I think our listeners need to understand that it's going to be a real challenge to get on top of our country's drug abuse crisis if our clinicians don't know a little bit about drug testing. Okay, great. So we have to test, Jeff. And you know me, I like a plan. I'm a surgeon, you know, just, you know, they... They say never let the skin stand between you and the diagnosis. I want results. So assume that you're the CMO of a large healthcare system and you have people who are now seeking a cure. They, and I'm going to ask you what triggers people to actually look for help as, rather than look for the drug. That's the first question. But now they're seeking a cure. They want to get better. They, you know, The trigger has gone off. Now I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Dr. Racky about the MS Center. What kind of coordinated care do you need to develop and where does testing come into that? You know, so if you're talking to me in terms of designing that system that's going to care for the people who are seeking care, what does that look like? I'll give you a quick uh, rundown. Most hospital systems have figured it out already. They need a partnership with drug abuse treatment centers in the community because most hospitals don't have the facility or the staff on site to handle this problem. So there has to be a two-way communication with a reliable drug abuse treatment center. That drug abuse treatment center has got to provide acute care and chronic care. They need to provide detox in the form of buprenorphine, which most people know of as Suboxone or Methadone. They need to provide maintenance for these people that require maintenance substitution therapy. There has to be rapid access to intervention and treatment. You cannot let these people go back on the streets for weeks or months at a time. You have to get them in. You've got to educate your entire staff, maybe even have policies and procedures surrounding opioid prescribing that's consistent with state and federal guidelines. Uh, you need to make sure that you're offering some type of opioid or controlled substance education to your clinicians and your nurses in-house. You need to make sure that your clinicians know how to access the prescription drug monitoring database. I'm a faculty professor at University of Miami. Now, Pat, and when I go into the EMR, I can click one button that connects me to eForce, which is Florida State's prescription drug monitoring program. The university has made it easy for me to check and see what prescriptions a patient's getting on the outside. So I think the hospital systems have got to sit down, put a committee together and say, look, let's take these 10 bullet points that Dr. Gooden just highlighted and let's put them into action. We need to do this for our system. Sounds like a heavy lift, but it's an important lift because again, um, you're having people come into the emergency room in extremis, we're helping them recover. And then we're saying, let's see what we can do to get you better. And we need a system and a coordinated system to you know, help them help themselves. So Jeff, do people get cured from this? I mean, you know, they, you know, so you inadvertently got started on a strong narcotic after your orthopedic surgery, the surgery went well, you were often on pain medicine and you're stuck. And now somehow or another, you, know, you start to look for some fentanyl or you begin to look for heroin or whatever and you've got a family, you've got a job, you have a profession. What do you do? Is there, I need some hope here. Okay. So because so, remember, we have to care, but we have to deliver them across that chasm that um, helps them get better and re-engage with their community. Yeah, Pat. So I don't want to paint such a, uh, you know, dark brush across, across the disease, but it's a tough disease. So let me tell you, I've treated thousands of patients with opioid and substance use disorder in my history. 
And I will tell you just to kind of stereotype across the board, if you have a normal psyche and you started on pain pills, or let's say you're an athlete and you got injured and you started on pain pills and you got yourself what we used to call addicted or hooked on the medicine, you have a really good prognosis. But if you're starting out with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, severe anxiety, major depression, you're in for a tough road, right? Because you, you lose the ability to handle those underlying issues and you turn towards alcohol and illicit drugs to help you with your mental stress, for lack of a better word. So in general, if you have concomitant psychiatric disorder, I find substance use disorder to be a recurring disease. They go hand in hand. We used to call that the dual diagnosis. Or, and then it, you throw chronic pain on top, and now it's the trifold diagnosis, right? It's just very difficult to handle when you have the three of them together. So what you need to do is have a good team of mental health professionals. Patients are maintained on whichever antipsychotic, antidepressant types of medications they need. And they're maintained sometimes even long-term on methadone or buprenorphine. If you stay in treatment, you have a good counselor, you go for your therapy, you stay on your medications, you can live a normal lifestyle without returning to uh, misusing drugs. I've seen it thousands of times. Unfortunately, there are patients whose psych disease gets the better of them and they continue to revert back to these illicit drugs where you know, despite a, a great team effort, we just haven't been able to capture their disorder. We just don't have the either the science or the technology to be able to do that yet. Okay, so Jeff, being my normal charming self, you know, um, how do we do better? Because what we're doing right now seems to be managing the problem better. We understand the problem better. Doctors are being trained differently. We understand the impact of this, but we're at the tip of the spear. You know, we have the test, you have the experience, we have the intellectual capital. Do we have the will to really address this? And what does that look like? You know, Pat, there's, it's such a multi-pronged approach. But if you think about it, the major, and CDC just reported, right, that uh, the biggest offender for overdose deaths are synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which are pouring across our borders. They're coming from Mexico, it's coming from China, coming from the Middle East, they are synthesizing fentanyl, and it is just an extremely lethal drug, 100 times more potent than morphine. So I think what we need to do is government has to work on controlling the influx of these illicit drugs, and it is not easy to do by all means. Second of all, I've met with, with our town, and they were totally against drug testing students, but come up with a way that doesn't penalize the student it, with any legal ramifications. Hey, all we're looking for is to intervene early because we know if we intervene early, we can save lives. But the parents were against drug testing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And, and I know we can't enforce it. But I think if you're a pediatrician and you see adolescent patients, if I was a pediatrician, I'd want to incorporate drug testing into to my practice. If I was a school nurse, I'd want some system of drug testing. Heck, the athletes, if, they, if the coaches think that these kids aren't smoking pot and popping oxys or Vicodins for their pain, they're wrong. We got to open our eyes and recognize that if, if we could detect drug misuse early on in our younger patient population, we may be able to stop it from advancing to that point. And also education, Pat. Think about if you're, I want to use the word dumb because I can't think of another word. If you're dumb enough to take a pill at a party that somebody says, here, chew on this, you might die. You need some education to say, look, you cannot take any substance that you don't know what it is. 
and opioids are killing people. Don't even try it. Just say no. Back. Let's go back to Nancy Reagan. So when we look at this, Jeff, we both have the opportunity now to work at Quest Diagnostics. You know, you're an anesthesiologist, the pain management specialist. I'm an OBGYN, a surgical specialist. Um, how does Quest and how does testing fit into this whole paradigm of drug addiction, drug management? What do we do or what on a daily basis to help? Because I know you're doing a lot of great work here. Tell me a little bit about that work. Yeah, so Pat, Quest Diagnostics has uh, a full team of uh, specialty representatives just for prescription drug monitoring and toxicology across the country. Uh, they call on doctors every day to help educate them about drug testing. What does a rational drug monitoring protocol look like? They're helping our healthcare systems get set up from a, from a drug testing standpoint. You know, I, I look at Quest as kind of one of the good guys, as an industry steward. Every year we put out a, a publication called Health Trends. You could look them up for our drug monitoring division. It gives you some insights into what do we find. And when we look at our hundreds of thousands or millions of drug samples every year, what's the positivity rate for benzos and opioids and combination therapies and heroin and where are they popping up and what are the age demographics? We just published, I think you mentioned in the intro, a paper a few months back about our uh, fentanyl and heroin positivity after the start of COVID. Uh, I have a poster coming up at one of our national pain meetings in a few weeks that looks at the sensitivity of point of care testing versus what we actually do in the lab with definitive drug testing. Uh, and it shows that although point of care is a good first step, it's certainly not sensitive enough to pick up the majority of drugs that, that our patients might be using. So you need to rely on a lab or some highly complex laboratory method to give us good results. So I think Quest has really been a good partner to clinicians on the front lines, to healthcare systems, to help them set up their infrastructure to be able to detect inappropriate drug misuse so that we could address it early and hope prevent some of these unfortunate overdose-related deaths. Okay, so Jeff, as I'm hearing you, it's more than just a test. You and I talk about that. You have a test with a plan that requires a lot of commitment, a lot of will, and a lot of support. But also, I you know, would venture to say, using the intellectual capital that we have at Quest, and certainly you, know, you being one of the leaders of that with your team, we can begin to address this head on. And I think we are addressing this head on. So as we close up here and finish our conversation, what are the two or three points you want to leave the audience with? I mean, what do you want them to take home and tell their friends and their colleagues? You know, Pat, I, I touched on this a little bit. I think clinicians are still getting a bad rap. I mean, doctors on the front line, hey, all we're trying to do is take care of patients. And there are some patients, I work in a pain center, that literally have failed every therapy and have miserable disease and terrible pain. They don't have cancer. What does that mean? They're going to live a long time with their miserable disease and their pain. Sometimes it's necessary for us to use opioids. You know, I heard this term and it just stuck in my head a couple of decades ago. They're good medicines and bad drugs, right? Yeah. Opioids are good medicines if you need them, but they're bad drugs if you, if you don't need them. So stop picking on the clinicians for prescribing opioids. As a matter of fact, everybody quotes the CDC guidelines about opioid prescribing. I think they were written by a bunch of anti-opioid non-practicing clinicians. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, the Department of Health and Human Services Task Force came out and said, look, be careful following the dosage guidelines for CDC. Even AMA just came out with a, some statement about that it could be hurting patients, this guideline that CDC put out, which basically said, hey, if you're going to use opioids, use really, really tiny doses. And you know, uh, I agree we needed some change to the overprescribing that was going on out there. But don't chastise your physicians because they're trying to take care of patients with really bad issues. Number two, if you are a clinician, never, never, never be afraid to ask your patients about drug and alcohol use. If you don't ask, they won't tell you. And if you have any challenges at all, ask them to pee in a cup. We have saliva swabs now. You can't make pee. You're, you're embarrassed. You don't want to give me urine. Here, we have saliva swabs at Quest. Hey, you really don't want to do anything? We could take blood if we had to. It's not the best medium, but, but we'll take it. And then for the healthcare systems, you have to put a team in place to address this challenging group of patients with substance use disorder. They are not going away. As a matter of fact, they're growing year after year. Wow. So summarize, stop picking on the docs, you know, or the healthcare professionals. They're doing their best, but also make sure that they're accountable. We got that. Ask about drug and alcohol uh, use. They may be uncomfortable conversations, but they're essential conversations. And then the way you attack this opioid epidemic is through team-based care. I have that right, Jeff? I couldn't have said it better, Pat. This was fantastic, and I appreciate you asking me to join you today. Okay, so we just had the opportunity to visit with Dr. Jeffrey Gooden, who's a pain management specialist uh, who leads our toxicology division uh, franchise at Quest Diagnostics. We're going to be wrapping up here for Diagnostic Dialogues. And again, I'm Dr. Pat Alaja, uh, your host today. And if you want to hear more interviews with our conversations with our franchise leaders, Tune in to Diagnostic Dialogues. You can get it on your uh, local podcast stations. Thank you so much again, Dr. Gooden. Thanks, Pat. That's it for this episode of the Diagnostic Dialogues. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please follow us on your favorite podcast apps and follow us on LinkedIn for more cutting-edge content and to engage with the physician guests from the program. Be sure to visit our site, questdialogues.com. Until next time. <laughs>